Greetings! You're listening to podcast number 110 of Blast the Right. I'm your host, Jack Clark. Great to have you on board. Today, you'll hear all about the true bottom line when it comes to the right wing. To paint you the simplest picture possible, that would be endless fields of U.S. green. Money, money, money. As part of this, you'll hear some breathtaking clips of Franklin Delano Roosevelt condemning the right wingers of his time. Let's get right into it. My sources are the New York Times, the Miller Center at the University of Virginia, CommonDreams.org, FairEconomy.org, and MSNBC.com. George W. Bush was speaking to a gathering of Republican fundraisers when he let loose with this all-too-revealing quip. This is an impressive crowd, the haves and the have-mores. <laughs> Some people call you the elite. I call you my base. (laughs) A man not prone, as far as I know, to joke-telling in public was noted economist John Kenneth Galbraith. In his own serious manner, he echoed the underlying meaning of Bush's quip by pinpointing the guiding principle of all right-wing philosophy. This is one of my favorite quotes of all time. Galbraith wrote, Quote, the modern conservative is engaged in one of man's oldest exercises in moral philosophy, that is, the search for a superior moral justification for selfishness. Close quote. In other words, whenever you hear any political doctrine, moral argumentation, or other intellectual verbiage from a right-winger, you can be sure the ultimate purpose is to justify some aspect or other of right-wing Gimme, gimme more, gimme even more than that, behavior. Examples would include such recent right-wing talking points as, We don't want to punish success. It's your money. You're fomenting class warfare. And, The entire doctrine of social Darwinism, which posits that the poor are poor because they're lazy, unintelligent, and immoral. In case you're interested, I address the class warfare canard in podcast number 15 and discuss social Darwinism at length, along with a delicious audio clip from right-wing philosopher king Bill O'Reilly in podcast 83. Now, I have what I call the Jack Clark corollary to that wonderful Galbraith passage. I encompass not so much, or better yet, not just what right-wingers say, but what they do as well. Here it is. Quote, Everything the right wing does is designed to accomplish one of two things. Either A. Transfer wealth from everyone else to the rich, or B. Distract everyone else from the fact that A is occurring. Let me repeat that so you can listen carefully. It's a big concept to get your arms around. Everything the right wing does is designed to accomplish one of two things. Either A. Transfer wealth from everyone else to the rich or B. Distract everyone else from the fact that A is occurring. Addressing B first, how does the right wing distract everyone else from the fact that the wealth transfer in A is occurring? 
First would be the very right-wing talking points and pseudo-philosophies that I just mentioned. Second would be the various social wedge issues which right-wing leaders use, unfortunately oh so well, to rile up their base. Gay rights, abortion, gun control, immigration bashing, even the pathetic war against Christmas. What I'm going to focus on with you in this podcast is the A part of my corollary, the bottom line right-wing goal of transferring wealth from everyone else to the rich. This is a very practical subject. You'll undoubtedly encounter right-wingers who say it's fine with them if wealth is continuing to be transferred from everyone else to the rich. Okay, such a person may well be unreachable. But there are also plenty of right-wingers, or those who at least consider themselves such, who are completely unaware of this ongoing process, or who have heard about it but deny it's true. It's for purposes of engaging these right-wingers, who are always of the non-wealthy variety, that what you're about to hear will be most useful. All that being said, the cold hard numbers irrefutably show that as far as transferring wealth to the rich from everyone else, the right-wingers are succeeding probably beyond even their own wildest expectations. To start off with, a factoid. Did you know that every year Forbes magazine publishes a list of the 400 richest Americans? Up through 2005, if you had several hundred million dollars, you would have made that august list. Not anymore. In 2006, the catchword abbreviation is OBNA. OBNA? Only billionaires need apply. In fact, the list would have to be expanded to 482 to include all the billionaires in our nation. For you Anglophiles out there, to put this in perspective, the Queen of England herself, having accumulated centuries of royal treasure, wouldn't even make the Forbes 400 list. Not even close. The Forbes 400's minimum entry requirement is $1.3 billion. That's $1,300 million. Poor Queen Elizabeth II. She's only got less than half that, a paltry $600 million. I will be setting up a fund drive for her soon. Details to follow. Okay, there's a lot of wealth at the top, but what about the transferring from everyone else part? The cold hard reality stares you in the face here as well. Since the year 2000, for example, the ranks of billionaires have increased by 184 in America. But the poverty rate has also gone up. Millions more are in poverty who weren't before and the percentage of what is called extreme poverty reached near record levels. Transfer wealth from everyone else to the wealthy. Now, let's expand the time frame from beyond just since Bush took office. Right-wing economics really began to take hold in the U.S. under the administration of Ronald Reagan, who took office in 1981. That's when the initial deconstruction or should I say destruction, of New Deal progressive economic policies began in earnest. You can look at this from a couple of angles. Take your pick. Executives versus workers. In 1982, the highest paid CEO pulled in $108 million, while the average full-time worker, adjusted in 2006 dollars, made $34,199. Fast forward to 2006. The average worker's pay barely inched up at all, 
to $34,861 from $34,199. And his or her health and pension coverage was reduced, so the average worker is worse off. But the highest paid CEO made $647 million. That's a six-fold increase in pay on the CEO side, $108 million to $647 million. And the highest paid hedge fund manager, they're the guys really pulling in the biggest bucks now, the highest paid hedge fund manager was awarded a cool $1.7 billion in compensation. Workers, stagnant or worse, CEOs and hedge fund managers increasing their pay 700% or more. Right-wing economics at work. Another angle, wealth. Get a load of this. Professor of Economics at New York University, Edward Wolf, crunches these numbers all the time. His stats are rock solid. Professor Wolf has calculated that between 1983 and 2004, the richest 1% of households increased their average wealth by 78% while the least well-to-do bottom 40% of your fellow citizens saw their wealth decline by 59%. Wealthiest up, bottom 40% down. Transfer of wealth from everyone else to the rich. In fact, the situation now is the worst since the Great Depression. I have this chart here which I wish you could see. Let me describe it to you. Visualize across the bottom a left-to-right timeline, 1925 to 2005. You see on the left a vertical axis. As it rises, it indicates an increasing percentage of the nation's wealth. Then, two lines extend horizontally across the graph. One line represents the share of U.S. individual income of the poorest 90%, the other line of the richest 1%. The New Deal era was roughly from the early 1930s through 1981. This is when relatively progressive economic policies were followed. During this New Deal era, you can see on the chart that the top 1% share of wealth line drops lower and lower as the years progress. At the same time, the bottom 90% share of wealth line steeply rises and then holds its own over the years. But then, in the early 1980s, when Reagan started pushing through his right-wing reverse Robin Hood agenda, that top 1% share of wealth line begins to rise and the bottom 90% share of wealth line plummets. When you see this chart, it becomes clear that since 1980, the richest 1% of Americans have doubled their share of the nation's income. The most unequal situation since the Great Depression. Transfer wealth from everyone else to the wealthy. One last thing. Unspent income accumulated over time equals additional wealth. Is it any wonder that our 400 richest Americans in a recent year had about as much wealth as the entire lower half of the US population, 57 million households? I couldn't believe this when I read it. I had to go look it up on the US Department of Commerce stats. It's true. 400 people versus 57 million households. True right-wing balance. In sum, no right-winger could possibly deny that the rich are getting richer and that the poor are getting poorer and more numerous. Okay class, 
that's mostly about it today with all the numbers and stats. Next stop for your pure listening pleasure, some amazing words from FDR's own mouth condemning just this type of income and wealth inequality. Your one-minute voting report. Thanks for all the five-star reviews in iTunes. Please keep them coming in to counter the one-star sabotage reviews from right-wingers. iTunes is especially important for spreading the blast the right word, the progressive word, because iTunes is where most people go to find podcasts. Also, thanks for all the podcast alley votes. If you haven't yet voted this month, please do so. Unlike iTunes, Podcast Alley starts its voting anew at the beginning of each month. Thanks. Please sit back and listen carefully to what you're about to hear. Or, if you're walking around or bicycling or otherwise not sitting still, do pay attention nevertheless. Franklin Delano Roosevelt was speaking to the 1936 Democratic Convention, he was explaining how he viewed the then-present economic situation, which he argued resulted from the Industrial Revolution and the economic changes it had wrought. Roosevelt told the nation that while the 1776 revolution threw off political tyranny, there was now an economic tyranny that must be vanquished. When you listen, please keep in mind at all times, this was a sitting President of the United States speaking one that was re-elected literally over and over and over again. First, Roosevelt states his axiom. An old English judge said once upon a time, necessitous men are not free men. Liberty requires opportunity to make a living. A living, decent, according to the standard of the time. A living which gives man not only enough to live by, but something to live for. If you're necessitous, if you don't have enough food, clothing, shelter, medical care, educational opportunities, the necessities of life. If you're necessitous, you can't be considered a free man. To have liberty, you have to have not just enough to live by, but something to live for. Next, Roosevelt points out that severe economic inequality makes impossible the type of political equality all citizens are entitled to. For too many of us, the political equality we once had won was meaningless in the face of economic inequality. A small group had concentrated into their own hands an almost complete control over other people's property, other people's money, other people's labor, other people's lives. For too many of us, 
far too many of us throughout the land, life was no longer free, liberty no longer real. Men could no longer follow the pursuit of happiness. While Roosevelt was speaking 70 plus years ago, don't those words ring true now? A small group has indeed in the year 2007 commandeered a far disproportionate share of the nation's wealth and income. Not only that, but as in the past, they control the reins of government. And so it was natural and perfectly human that the privileged princes of these new economic dynasties thirsting for power reached out for control over government itself. They created a new despotism and wrapped it, wrapped it in the robes of legal sanction. In its service, new mercenaries sought to regiment the people their labor, their property. And as a result, the average man once more confronts the problem that faced the Minuteman of 76. Roosevelt likens the situation in 1936 to that facing the American revolutionaries of 1776. What to do about it? What to do? Roosevelt proclaims that against such concentrated economic power, there's only one place the average citizen can turn. Against economic tyranny such as this, the American citizen could only appeal to the organized power of government. We well remember that the collapse of 1929 showed up the despotism for what it was. And the election of 1932 was the people's mandate to end it, and under that mandate it is being ended. <laughs> And that, Roosevelt says, is just what he did in the 30s. And that's just what we progressives must do in the opening years of this 21st century. Use the organized power of government to fight against the economic tyranny of the right. But will the right take this lying down? Of course not. They didn't back then, and they won't now. Remember John Kenneth Galbraith's warning that Right-wing philosophy is nothing but ever more clever justifications for selfishness? Roosevelt sets out just such a right-wing argument that we still hear today whenever economic justice is brought up. The royalists I have spoken of, the royalists of the economic order, have conceded that political freedom was the business of the government but they have maintained that economic slavery was nobody's business. 
they granted that the government could protect the citizen in his right to vote, but they denied that the government could do anything to protect the citizen in his right to work and his right to live. Did you catch FDR's term, economic slavery? How forceful is that? And how many times have you heard from your friendly local right-winger that the government should stay out of the economy? It has no business intervening. But since necessitous men are not free men, they're economic slaves, the proper role of government is to intervene in the economy when freedom is imperiled by economic deprivation. Today, today we stand committed to the proposition that freedom is no half-and-half affair. If the average citizen is guaranteed equal opportunity in the polling place, he must have equal opportunity in the marketplace. Roosevelt ends his line of thought with a passage which should warm the heart of any progressive and send chills up the spine of any right-winger. These economic royalists complain that we seek to overthrow the institutions of America. What they really complain of is that we seek to take away their power. Our allegiance and our allegiance to American institutions requires the overthrow of this kind of power. In vain, they seek to hide behind the flag and the Constitution. But in their blindness, they forget what the flag and the Constitution stand for. Now, now as always, for over a century and a half, the flag, the Constitution, stand against a dictatorship by mob rule and the overprivileged alike. And the flag and the Constitution stand for democracy, not tyranny, for freedom, not subjection. Let's break this down a bit. It's well worth the time. These economic royalists complain that we seek to overthrow the institutions of America. What they really complain of is that we seek to take away their power. Economic royalists, he calls the right wing. In other words, 
Just like the political royalists felt all political power should belong to the king and a ruling elite, so economic royalists feel all economic power and the bulk of economic benefits properly belong to the economic elite. The economic elite is, of course, either equivalent to the political elite or those in whose interests the political elite governs. So a challenge to the economic royalists is, certainly, seen by them as an effort to take away their political power. Roosevelt's next sentence is, to me, the most powerful in the speech. Our allegiance and our allegiance to American institutions requires the overthrow of this kind of power. It isn't just a good thing, or a better thing, or something that's desirable. To be loyal to America, it requires, requires that we overthrow the power of the economic royalists. Roosevelt continues on to expose right-wing hypocrisy. In vain, they seek to hide behind the flag and the Constitution. But in their blindness, they forget what the flag and the Constitution stand for. They hide behind the flag and the Constitution. Right-wingers back then are the same as right-wingers now. I would quibble a bit with FDR, though, about blindness making them forget what the flag and the Constitution stand for. I think the right-wing leadership, if not the rank and file, certainly are aware of the anti-American values nature of their agenda. FDR powerfully concludes his line of thought, setting out what he believes the flag and Constitution stand for and against. Now... Now, as always, for over a century and a half, the flag, the Constitution, stand against a dictatorship by mob rule and the overprivileged alike. And the flag and the Constitution stand for democracy, not tyranny, for freedom, not subjection. My goodness, FDR explicitly states in a major speech that a dictatorship by the overprivileged is un-American and exactly what the right wing had imposed on the country. As in the past, so in the present, or at least well on the way towards it. After you've just heard these stellar words of FDR, can you now have an even firmer understanding of the reason for the passion Rush Limbaugh summons up when he proclaims, Roosevelt is dead. His policies may live on, but we're in the process of doing something about that as well. Limbaugh and the other right-wing ideologues hate Roosevelt so much, not just because of his specific New Deal programs, but also because of, probably even more because of, the way FDR explicitly spelled out to the American people in a no-holds-barred manner the true nature of the right-wing agenda and how that right-wing agenda was in reality the un-American path. 
All right, we don't have an FDR today, but take heart a bit because, believe it or not, the American people are not clueless about all this. A December 2006 Bloomberg poll found that nearly three-quarters of Americans believe the, quote, growing gap between rich and poor is a major issue, close quote. As you go up the income scale, fewer feel that way, but still a majority do. A whopping 84% of those making less than $40,000 a year feel that economic inequality is a serious issue. In a hopeful sign, more than 60% of those with incomes above $100,000 a year still think so. Even 55% of Republicans feel the situation is serious. Corroborating all this, a separate poll found that 6 in 10 Americans feel the wealthy pay too little in taxes. Kick someone long and hard enough, and he may begin to notice, I guess. If you're challenged about what you propose to do about our unjust economic situation, you can simply explain that the New Deal featured such measures as the first federal minimum wage law, protection for labor unions, and progressive taxation. Such approaches would work fine again now. So let's implement some good old-fashioned, historically American solutions. Raise the minimum wage to between 9 and $10 an hour to regain the purchasing power the minimum wage had in 1968. Pass legislation allowing union certification by card checkoff and remove the anti-union members from the National Labor Relations Board. Repeal not just Bush's, but Reagan's tax cuts for those making above, oh, say, 250 or even $500,000 a year. And, for good measure, retain that pre-New Deal wealth-leveling mechanism, the estate tax, for estates of over 2 or $3 million. One quick debunking of a right-wing talking point. This is touted by none other than our friend Rush Limbaugh on his website's homepage. He's written he will keep this point there forever. It's so important. What's his great point? It's that the share of income taxes paid by the wealthy has gone up, so things are more progressive now. The simple rebuttal is, the share of taxes paid by the wealthy has gone up only because their incomes have grown so much more rapidly than everyone else's, as I showed you earlier. These ballooning incomes mean that, even with tax rates on the wealthy having been cut, the wealthy still wind up paying a larger share of taxes because their income is a far larger share of total income. Before I close, one simple statistic. What amazes me is that the wealthiest are never satisfied. They're not yet satisfied with their far disproportionate share of the nation's income and wealth. I ask you, how much more do they want? The wealthiest 10% of Americans own 70% of all assets in private hands. Do they want to increase that to 80% of the wealth? 90%? How about 100%? Maybe they can have it all. We can go back to feudal times. Everyone else can depend on the kindness and largesse of the lords and other nobles to survive. Let me stress here, I'm not saying that everyone should earn the same income. Of course not. And of course, they can be wealthy people. What I am condemning here, what FDR condemned, is such extreme unequal distribution of wealth that those outside the wealthy classes wind up having less than they need to lead a decent life by American standards. So there you have it. 
you now have the info to force any right-winger to admit that the concentration at the top in America of both income and wealth is increasing. I used to have an email form reply to right-wingers who ranted and raved about class warfare. It went something like, Are you rich, selfish, and callous? Or not rich, just a brainwashed wannabe being led around by the nose? Perhaps that language is too strong for personal one-on-one encounters. If your friendly local right-winger doesn't immediately grasp how they're self-sabotaging themselves economically, you could gently suggest to them that if they're not rich, why are they advocating on behalf of the rich? The wealthy can advocate on their own behalf very well, thank you. Why, Mr. or Ms. non-wealthy right-winger, don't you advocate on your own behalf? And you, progressive listener, your goal as a progressive is to advocate on behalf of those without a voice. Lately, I've been thinking about isms. I don't really believe in any economic isms. Neither capitalism, nor communism, nor socialism. But if there's a right-wing policy that truly reduces human misery, suffering, pain, and death, I've never heard of it. So far, progressive policies seem far, far more likely to fit that bill. But I have an open mind. I think I'll call myself a humanitarian pragmatist. Humanitarian, as in reducing human misery, suffering, pain, and death, is my aim. Pragmatist, as in whatever works, is my game. I fully intend to win the game and achieve my aim. How about you? Well, that'll about wrap it up for today. If you like what you heard, please tell a friend about Blast the Right and vote for Blast the Right at PodcastAlley.com as well as write a five-star review for Blast the Right in iTunes. A special shout-out if you're a Live 365 or Red Dragon 365 listener. Great to have you with us. Please consider coming over to the podcast homepage, subscribing for free, and then you can download and listen to any episode of the podcast anytime you want. You get to the podcast homepage by searching for Blast the Right in Google, and I'm the first result. Thanks for all your feedback on the debate I had with Jen from ScrewLiberals.com. The comments on my blog on the podcast homepage were coming in fast and furious, and then all of a sudden they stopped, and I didn't understand why. Then I checked. It got broken. The comments got broken. I fixed them, so if you wanted to write a comment and weren't able to, you can go back and write it now if you want. Music credits. The break music was The Schnee Speaks by KG House, combined with the alternate Blast Right theme by Nye's Music, and Not The One Blues by Burnshee Thornside. We'll close with a little bit of Taking My Country Back by Honky Tonkers for Truth. Links to all the music I play on Blast the Right can be found on my music resources page. Links to all the statistics and quotations I use can be found on the data resources page. Both of them are linked to off the main podcast homepage. Thanks as always to radio talk show host extraordinaire Tom Hartman for the Rush Limbaugh audio clip. Also on the data resources page, the links to Franklin Delano Roosevelt's speech, the text, and the MP3, I put links there that are currently broken. That is where I got that material a couple of months ago. Maybe they'll fix the link. If not, I don't know where to get the MP3, although the text of the speech itself can probably be found elsewhere online. Please keep all that great email coming in. I love to hear from you, and I'm catching up slowly but surely, so be patient. My address is rational at roadrunner.com. You can also call in and leave a comment for me to play on Blast the Right. Dial 310-933-5891 and leave your message. You can also leave a message on Skype. 
My Skype name is Jack from Blast the Right. So, until next time, I'll sign off and say I love you all, including all you right-wing misguided souls. I'm taking my country back. Son, you ain't been doing her right. Oh, I've been watching you and I don't like how you've been treating my stars and stripes. You took our jobs and sent them overseas. Now we owe billions to the red Chinese. You blew the budget and you bossed Iraq. So I'm taking my country back. We had a bundle in the treasury drawer. More than there had ever been before. But every day we're drowning deeper in debt Maybe four years should be all you get Then you gave tax breaks to the millionaires And you tried to make the working man pay But you can't tax a man when his job's not there Now look at where we are today Hey, I'm taking my car